If you're visiting with us this morning, you, you may have noticed and you may not that we haven't had a Bible reading yet in our service. Uh, this last few weeks, we have been following a series in Mark's Gospel where rather than having a separate Bible reading and then a, a talk later, I'm asking everyone to join with me and, and look together at Mark's Gospel. So if you could turn with me to Mark chapter 8, it's on page 1012 in the Bible in the pew, Mark chapter 8. <clears throat> there was a Sunday school teacher who had been telling the, the children in the class the story from Matthew chapter 2, where the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph and told him to flee with his wife and with his child uh, from, from Herod, who was going to murder them. Sunday school teachers often do this, but the teacher asked the kids to, to represent the story in a picture. So handed out the paper and the crayons and let the kids work away for a while. And then as she was looking around to see the pictures the kids had produced, she noticed one wee fella had produced a, a massive big aeroplane. And the teacher, she, he was a bit nervous that the, the kid just hadn't understood the story very well. So sidled up beside them and said, you know, what's that? And, and the wee boy said, that's the flight to Egypt. And right enough, whenever you had a look, there was, was Joseph and Mary and the baby Jesus in the passenger seats, um, enjoying the flight to Egypt. But the, the teacher still had more questions and, and looked at this plane and, and noticed a, a figure up in the cockpit. Who's that up in the cockpit? And, and the child, you know, was getting a bit frustrated with this, this dopey Sunday school teacher by the stage. That's Pontius Pilate, of course. <laughs> Children aren't the only ones who get a little bit confused about Christianity and what it's all about. A lot of adults do as well. A lot of people in Britain today have rejected Christianity on their terms but what they've actually rejected is not Christianity, it's their understanding of what the Christian faith is. Today, as we spend a wee bit of time together in Mark chapter 8, I hope to be able to show you that Jesus, in this chapter, makes it really very, very clear what Christianity is all about, what it is to be a Christian. So let's, let's look together at Mark chapter 8. Whenever we look at this passage, we're going to discover that a Christian is a person who knows who Jesus is, who understands why Jesus came, and a person who then is willing to respond to Jesus and to follow him. Very quickly, the first part of that, who is Jesus? That's a question that dominates the first eight chapters of Mark's gospel, and it's a question that we thought about earlier in our series do you remember we talked about this in the very first week? Mark, Mark, in the very first sentence of his gospel, tells you that it's the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So he gives it away in the very first line. It's like starting an Agatha Christie novel and saying, the butler did it. You know, it, you, would think, you would think it would undermine the whole thing a little bit, this idea that, that we know who Jesus is and his identity straight away. But actually, it's very interesting because... We, the readers, are the only people who know that. Nobody else in the story knows. So we get to watch Jesus 
live his life, and we get to see other people watching and assessing and trying to scratch in their heads, who is this man? And what we discover, Jesus is, is preaching with power. He's, he's healing people. He's even raising people from the dead. But still, people aren't really getting it. At least not until now, until Mark chapter 8. This is where the lights begin to go on. In verses 27 to 29, Jesus begins to, to teach and push this a little bit. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say you're Elijah, others say you're one of the prophets. So Jesus asked them, what's the word out there? Who do people think I am? And that was an easy question to answer. They just told Jesus, you know, this is what people are saying. They say you're Elijah, one of the prophets, or so on. But now comes uh, a more pointed question. Jesus turns to them, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And this is where it gets personal for each one of us. Mark's written the gospel here in a way that it's drawing us in. For each one of us reading, we're now faced with a question. Okay, we've read this, all this stuff about Jesus. Who is he? Who do we say that Jesus is? And then Peter answers, you are the Christ. Now, we need to take a step back from that for a second. What does that actually mean? What does it mean when Peter says you're the Christ? It means that Peter recognizes that Jesus is God's chosen one, the anointed one, the king. He's basically saying, Jesus, you're the great king, all-powerful, sent from God. That's what Peter says about Jesus' identity in this sentence. And of course, he's entirely right. Peter's got it absolutely spot on. A lot of people today are like that. And I would, I would guess that a lot of people maybe here this morning are like that. We believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And that's great because, because that's so entirely true. But it's not enough. It's the first part of what it is to be a Christian. Let's Let's see what the, why it's not enough. If, if we read on in Mark chapter 8, it soon becomes clear. He, that is Jesus, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. It's very, very interesting what's going on here because Mark says Jesus began to teach. This is a new thing that Jesus has said to his disciples that he's never said before. He waits until just that moment when they realize he's the Messiah, that he's God's chosen one. And then as soon as they make that connection, he says, right, the Messiah is going to suffer and die. Now that turns on its head everything that the Jews expected in a Messiah. They thought a Messiah was going to come, be a powerful political leader, kick the Romans out of their country, and give them the life that they had been hoping for. You see, Peter knows who Jesus is now. He knows he's the Messiah, but he doesn't know why the Messiah came. 
He doesn't understand that second important aspect of what it is to be a Christian. I wonder what, what Peter said to Jesus when he took him aside. We're not told. We're just told that he took him aside to rebuke him. Jesus, if you're the Messiah sent from God, then surely you're not going to be killed. Getting killed isn't a smart way to establish your kingdom and to bring God's will into this earth. It's ridiculous. But then Jesus turns to Peter and he corrects him and turn. He says, Peter, you don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Peter, you're only looking at this from a human perspective. And of course, that's when you look at the cross from a human perspective, it just looks stupid. It's what, what we call the foolishness of the gospel. Jesus, in, in weakness and shame, crucified. You know, he, he obviously wasn't as powerful as he claimed to be. He obviously couldn't stand up to these Romans after all. He couldn't stand up to the Jewish authorities. They had had him crucified. But what would we see if we looked at the cross from God's perspective? Wouldn't we see that actually everything that happened to Jesus in the days leading up to his crucifixion happened only because he allowed them to? Only because he chose that they would happen? He chose not to resist arrest. That's what we're told. Legions of angels ready to come at his command, but he said, no, I'll, I'll, I'll allow myself to be arrested. He, he chose to be crucified on a cross. He chose to carry my sins and yours. None of this, none of this was forced on Jesus. He, he allowed these things to happen. So when we look at the cross, all of a sudden we see not, not some, some sign of the weakness of Jesus, but we see the most powerful event in history, the most powerful inbreaking of the love of God that we've ever seen. We, we need to look at the cross not through human eyes, but, but through God's eyes. We need to have in mind not the things of men as Peter did, but the things of God. So that's the second thing that defines a Christian, a person who understands what Jesus came to do. Once we believe these things, that Jesus is the Son of God, that he came to die in our place and take our sins in himself, there's still something missing. Because I, I think if I scratched beneath the surface through the pews this morning, I'd find people who maybe believe all of this. People who believe all of this, but leave it at that. There, there's one ingredient still missing. To be a true follower of Jesus Christ, we have to respond to Jesus' invitation. And we're going to spend the last few minutes this morning thinking about that. Again, the answer's here in Mark chapter 8. Straight after Jesus has put Peter straight about the necessity of his dying, he goes on in verse 34. He called a crowd to him along with his disciples. If anyone would come after me, do you know what Jesus is saying there? He's saying if anyone would be a Christian, if anyone would identify themselves with the Christ, if anyone would be of me. So that's what he's going to explain now. 
If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me in the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man or for a woman to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? What can a man give in exchange for his soul? Jesus is saying here, believing who I am and why I came is not enough. You must commit to me. You must follow me. And he talks about that following of him. He says there's a, you need a change of allegiance. There's a call here to die. But then he gives us a very convincing reason why we should do that. Very, very quickly. If anyone would come after me, they must deny themselves and follow me. Denying ourselves. Do those words not grate entirely on you? I think those two words are as countercultural an idea in 2004 as you'll ever come up against. All you have to do is watch the adverts on TV. Pamper yourself. Be good to yourself. Indulge yourself because you're worth it. Just wave after wave after wave. Indulge yourself, be good to yourself. Here Jesus says, no, deny yourself. He cuts across the bows of everything that our culture is saying to us right now. You see, we don't like denying ourselves. All of us, we're essentially self-serving creatures. We like to promote ourselves and, and then to, to protect ourselves. But we certainly don't like to deny ourselves. Maybe I could put this to you in the form of a question. Who has the right to tell you how to live your life? I can hear the voices inside your heads. No one. No one has the right to tell us. We all, we all recoil from a question like that. No one has the right to tell us how to live our lives. That's, that's what we believe, not only in our heads, but passionately in our hearts. Imagine somebody who, who felt they had the right to tell you how to do your job, how to spend your time, what to do with your money, how your relationships should be. It's, it's awful. We all recoil from that idea. But no matter how convinced we are of the awfulness of that, it's true. You see, God made us. We're creatures. It's the first thing that the Bible tells us about who we are, is that we're made by God, and we're made in His image. Because of that, living our lives as though we're independent of God is actually crazy. It's nonsense. We are entirely dependent on God for our life and for our continued life. I want, maybe, maybe think of it like this for a second. Think of a small child. There are times when Patrick wishes he was independent of his parents. There are times when 
we don't want him to do something. We make that clear to him. And he finds that the most difficult thing in the world. But we would be entirely irresponsible if we allowed him to go his own way. If we allowed him to play on a pavement beside lanes of rushing traffic. If we allowed him to do the things that he wanted. Well, you see, it's the same with God. We push him away just like spoiled children will will push parents away and deny his authority, but he's still there. He's still there. As I was working on this at home, it, it dawned on me, denying ourselves isn't easy, but it actually makes sense. If you believe what the Bible says, it makes sense. For Patrick, there will come times when he'll learn to go along with his parents because he'll learn and become convinced that he loves them. Sorry, that they love him. That they want the best for him. A Christian is a person who has learned that about God. Who has learned that God loves them, wants the best for them, and actually handing over their lives to God no longer seems like the worst thing in the world. It might just be the best. That's the first thing Jesus says. Deny yourselves and follow me. Let's look again, though, and more closely at verse 34. If anyone would come after me, they must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. So following Jesus is more than just denying ourselves. Jesus uses this phrase, take up our cross. Now again, Jesus is talking to people who don't know what he's talking about here. He hasn't been crucified. They have no reason to suspect that he's going to be, but he knows. So he tells his disciples and these other people who who would be followers of his, he says, if you're going to follow me, Expect pain and suffering and death. Expect it to be the way of the cross. Now, where does that leave us? In Belfast in 2004, I don't believe that any of us will be, will be crucified for our faith, that we will even be martyred for our faith in, in our context. But that doesn't mean that there isn't a, a huge cost to consider that there aren't many types of dying to ourselves that we must consider if we're thinking about following Jesus. I was thinking back over, over my life, and I can think, think of times maybe in, in grammar school as a, a teenage boy. I was already a Christian as a teenage boy. And I can think of times when I knew that I just wasn't quite welcome in certain crowds because of things I believed in. And, and ways of behaving that I wasn't entirely happy with. I knew that I was, I was dying a death in that respect. Those people didn't want to know me. I can remember in my days uh, when I was doing my accounting exams, chatting to a, a fellow student, and I, we were do, all doing our, our professional exams at the time, and I explained to him that I, I didn't study on a Sunday. I still tried to keep Sundays free to to worship God and enjoy time with my family. And the guy just thought I was nuts. He thought, you're soft in the head. This, this religious stuff, you're taking that far too seriously. 
And again, I just felt it's, it's not easy to be identified with, with Christ and his ways. And now as a minister, if I'm in conversation with people, especially people who aren't churchy, um, and they find out that I used to be an accountant and I'm now a minister, they look at me in a way as if to say, you know what, what went wrong? You know, when did you lose your mind? To be identified closely with Christ and with the gospel means to die deaths. It maybe means to be left out of certain communities and to be pushed to the side here and there. And that's something I want to, I want to say to anyone who's sitting here thinking about becoming a follower of Jesus Christ. We're called to deny ourselves and to die with Christ. Don't get me wrong, though. I love living the Christian life. I live life with a sense of purpose and meaning that I know wouldn't otherwise be. I live life now with a sense that I am living the real deal. I'm living the way life is supposed to be lived. And I never once, I never once find myself thinking there'd be any, any reason to, to deviate from this path. If it's hard, so be it. It's the real deal. I'm living life with God. I'm living the life I was made for. Deny ourselves, take up our crosses, and very quickly and finally, Jesus comes along here and he says, it, it is as hard as that. There is as much to consider as that. But then he gives us a reason why we should. Look at verses 35 to 37. He says, whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man or a woman to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? What can a person give in exchange for their soul? This passage says that the most precious thing that we have is our soul. That part of us that will live on forever. And it doesn't matter at the end of the day how great your life is and how much wealth you have and how much power you have or how difficult your life is and how much suffering you experience. What matters is your soul. And Jesus says here it's the people it's the people who fight hardest to cling on to their lives, to keep God out of the road, to keep independent, to keep selfish, to keep me at the center. Those are the very people who lose life. Those who, who long to save their souls are those who lose it. And those who lose it for my sake are those who find it. What can a person give in exchange for their soul? Friends, the person who, who does trust Jesus Christ and walk with him, I, I often point you to the, the last chapters of Revelation. You can't think about the present unless you know the future. Listen to the future again that God plans for those who love him. If we, if we must suffer as Christians, if we must make sacrifices, Listen to what lies ahead of us. We'll go to a place where there's no more death 
or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. We're going to a place where there's only joy, where there's only love, there's only goodness, and there's no sin and corruption and wickedness and hatred and envy because we're going to God. That's what's at stake here. The eternal destiny of our souls. Friends, this morning we have discovered together from God's Word what a Christian is. A Christian is a person who knows who Jesus is, that he's the Son of God. A person who understands, unlike Peter, who understands why Jesus came. He came to die on a cross for my sins and for yours. And finally, a Christian is a person, as we thought these last few minutes, a person who is willing to deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow Jesus. What about you? Are you ready to do that? This morning I'm going to do something that I did a couple of times at the start of this series, and that is to close with a prayer. And it's a prayer for people who don't yet follow Jesus, but who have, who have felt that God is speaking to them through His Word and is moving them closer to a point where they are ready to, to commit to Jesus and to follow Him. As I did then, I'm going to do again. I'm going to, to tell you what the prayer is before we pray it. Let me, let me read it to you. Heavenly Father, I know that Jesus is your Son. Sorry, I want you to listen to this prayer and see if you could, you could pray it and mean it, that this could, be, this could sum up where you are with God this morning. Heavenly Father, I know that Jesus is your Son. Thank you for sending him into this world. Thank you that he's taken the punishment for my sins as he died on the cross. I've heard Jesus call to deny myself and to follow him. I want to do that. Please help me as I trust Jesus and begin to follow him. If you want to pray that prayer this morning, I'm going to, to pray it again in a moment. And I would ask you just to in the, the quiet of, of your own heart and mind, I want you to pray that along with me. Let us pray.